0: And while they're taking their places, uh, uh, the moderator for this session is, uh, uh, is, uh, will be Judge A. Raymond Randolph of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Um, judge Randolph was appointed by, uh, uh, judge, uh, for, by President George H.W. Bush. Uh, uh, I had the privilege of clerking for the judge uh, in his first uh, term at the court. Uh, he's had a distinguished career there as well as a very distinguished career both in private practice and in government. Also, having argued quite a number of cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, I believe twenty-six, and uh, one little, little little older than twenty-six. Though he just wants to note for the record,
1: Judge. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, Good morning. Thank you. I think we're. We now have a full house. Good morning. Well, you all know the topic uh, that we're going to have uh, these, uh, our distinguished panel of speakers uh, talk about. I just want to say a few words by way of introduction. Uh, spreading democracy has become, I'm not sure whether it still is, a centerpiece of the current administration's foreign policy. But what makes a democracy? Uh, for the past several weeks, I've been taking a poll. And I want to give you the official results they're now in. I have asked people uh, this question, what makes a democracy? And 99.9% say the ability of the people to elect their representatives. That's their definition of democracy. Well, then, if that is the definition, Cuba must be a democracy. And so is Iran and North Korea. North Korea calls itself the Democratic Republic of Korea. Um, According to one commentator that I've read, there are only five countries in the world that consider themselves not to be democracies. Uh, But you say many of those elections in those countries are shams. Well, last year the Palestinian territories had an election. Everybody thought it was uh, fair and free, and Hamas won. Hamas is listed by the State Department as a terrorist organization. If you want to support democracy by making a contribution to Hamas, you will be committing a federal criminal offense. Uh, Hugo Chavez was elected. Um, I need to say no more. Uh, and just the other day, Daniel Ortega uh, was elected president uh, uh, in Nicaragua on the Sandinista Liberation uh, National Liberation Front ticket. Um, So maybe elections are not the only key to a democracy. Perhaps a true democratic country is one that has free speech, freedom of religion, private property, rule of law, independent and honest judges. I add the honest because I was listening this morning as I was driving into a program on national public radio about the court system in Afghanistan, to the extent there is one. And one of the big problems is not independence, it's corruption. The judges are on the take. Um, but if that is the list uh, of, of attributes of democracy, then uh, we can be sure that, there, that we've narrowed the number of countries uh, that are truly democratic. And we can also be sure that to get on that list, many countries would have to go through a monumental cultural change. Francis Fukuyama writes in his most recent book that, quote, our record in nation building is mixed there are a few successes and a large number of failures. And where successes occurred, they require an extraordinary level of effort and attention. In virtually every case, the basic impetus came from within the target society and not from external pressure. If you think about it on a individual level, uh, I used to tell my children this, that before they try to change the behavior of someone else, they ought to consider how difficult it is to change their own behavior. And I think that's true, and, and many marriage, marriages have foundered on that simple truth, I think. Uh, but but uh, that may be so not only with respect to individuals, but also uh, with respect to, uh, to nation-states. Um, our distinguished panel will address some of these questions and, and more, Each panelist will have about 12 minutes, and then we'll have a short time for rebuttal and then open it up to questions. Our first speaker will be Kenneth Wallach. Since 1993, Mr. Wallach has been president of the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs. He's traveled extensively throughout the world on behalf of the Institute's political development programs. Before joining the institute, he co-edited the Middle East Policy Survey and wrote regularly on foreign affairs for the Los Los Angeles Times. Uh, Mr. Walt, Uh, Thank you very much, and some of your provocative uh, remarks, I think we
2: will come back to with regarding elections and regarding other institutional elements of of democracy. Um, I'd like to step back, however, and talk a little bit about the context within which we are operating. Um, Following the end of the Cold War, uh, we entered into a rare period in American history when fundamental assumptions uh, were being challenged. It was an exciting time for those who would presume to define a new American foreign policy. Uh, The phrase blank slate must, of course, be heavily qualified as the U.S. emerged from the Cold War we found ourselves entangled in numerous international commitments and with many responsibilities we would ignore only at our peril. Many of these commitments we wish to reaffirm and even strengthen. Our challenges as we debate the outlines of America's post-Cold War foreign policy was to make sensible choices about those prior commitments and to be sure that our new directions are not only relevant, but capable of receiving broad, popular support. For without such support, as we have found in Iraq, we will have neither the coherence nor the resources to succeed. Needless to say, the threats to American interests are still present in today's world. They include international terrorism, economic competition that could produce dangerous regional trade blocks and trade wars, environmental degradation reaching crisis proportions, the proliferation of weapons, both conventional and nuclear, and ethnic and national conflicts that could lead to war. These threats and others may not be, uh, not be easy to encapsulate in the public's mind, but any one of them could affect fundamentally our way of life in our growing interdependent, what Tom Friedman would call, our flat world. Any one of these threats could alter our sense of well-being, as we have found, and together they constitute ample reason for an engaged America in the international arena. The problem is that the answer to today's threats is not winning a metaphorical war against a single adversary. The answer lies in creating an overall environment in which international cooperation can be emphasized and in which conflict can be managed and that terrorism can be effectively confronted militarily, economically, and politically. In this context, foreign assistance is not only a charitable endeavor, but an exercise in enlightened self-interest. And the promotion of democracy, I would argue, is not some idealistic crusade, but rather a quintessential exercise in realpolitik. Nothing better serves the interests of this country economic, political, or ideological than the promotion of democratic practices and institutions. A more democratic world is not simply a more orderly and humane place, it is a more peaceful and more prosperous place. The notion that there should be a dichotomy between our moral preferences and our strategic goals is a false one. Our ultimate foreign policy goal is a world that is secure, stable, humane, safe, and where the risk of war is minimal. Yet the undeniable reality is that geostrategic hotspots, most likely to erupt into violence, are found for the most part in areas of the world that are non democratic or where governments are anti democratic. And even from the traditional foreign assistance perspective, the establishment of democratic institutions has been found to assure sustainable development. <coughs> Deforestation, rural dislocation, environmental degradation, and agricultural policies that lead to famine all trace to political systems in which the victims have no political voice, in which government institutions feel no obligation to answer to the people, and in which special interests feel free to exploit the resources, land, and people without fear of oversight or the need to account. Terrorism and political extremism pose an immediate security threat, that must be confronted directly and forcefully. Concurrently, there must be a new urgency in the promotion of the rule of law, pluralism, and the respect for human rights. Democracy and human rights are not only ideals to be pursued by all nations, they are also pragmatic tools that are powerful weapons against extremism. During the 1980s, an important lesson was learned about political transformations in countries like the Philippines and Chile that political forces on the far left and the far right enjoy a mutually reinforcing relationship, drawing strength from each other and in the process, marginalizing the Democrats in the middle. Prospects for peace and stability only emerged once Democratic political parties and civic groups were able to offer a viable alternative to the two extremes. These Democratic forces benefited from the solidarity and support they received from the international community, and in the U.S., Republicans and Democrats joined together to champion their cause. Today, these conditions find their parallel in the Middle East and in Asia. The U.S. agenda in these countries can help support those working for freedom of speech and expression, the so-called third way between autocratic regimes and religious extremists, for fair elections that reflect the will of the voters, for representative political institutions that are not corrupt and that are accountable to the public, and for judiciaries that uphold the rule of law. Future programs can identify key areas where democracy assistance can be effective, particularly concentrating on encouraging women's participation, strengthening democratic institutions and practices at the local and municipal level, and supporting journalists and activists in opening up debate throughout the region. Such initiatives should explore sub-regional and regional approaches that facilitate experience sharing and helping build linkages between democratic activists in the region. This strategy focuses on building institutions that pull together disparate voices that constitute civil and political society and helping them to identify their common interests and to channel them toward common ends. I would like to conclude, perhaps, just by answering four questions. First, is this costly? The entire democracy promotion budget of the United States government reflects about 3 percent of our total foreign assistance budget. Are the programs effective? In some places, yes. in Other places, no. And we're still learning how to deliver this assistance even more effectively. But it's important to talk to the beneficiaries of this outside engagement to see how they feel in places like the Philippines, in places like Chile, in places like Eastern Europe, in Africa, in Asia, and today in the Middle East, to determine what they believe that the international community has a role and a responsibility to engage in this endeavor. Is it an imposition? I would argue no, if we can put Iraq to the side. There is close to 100 countries over the last 30 years that have moved in one form or another toward a democratic transition. I think the United States has probably invaded only five of those. Something else is going on here. Um, Democratic aspirations, we have found, are universal. If you study public opinion polls in every region of the world, there is no clash of civilizations. People all over the world want the same thing. They want to put food on the table, but they also want to have a say in the political issues that govern their lives. They want to have the right to elect their leaders, guaranteed by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They want an independent judiciary. They want a parliament that can debate and enact laws. They want freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. These are are issues that you will find uh, across boundaries, across regions. Um, Finally, I will just say, are we alone in this effort? the answer is a resounding no. We are now, my organization, part of an international network made up of other American organizations, other organizations in other countries, non governmental groups, other governments now that are engaged in this effort, and intergovernmental organizations, and even in some of the most unlikely places uh, like inter, inter, uh, the international financial institutions that have come to recognize the interdependence between economic development, human development, and more open political systems. And so therefore, with this growing consensus among the economic development field, the political development field, politicians across the political spectrum, that an international solidarity and network has developed. This is not about ceding something to the United States. It's about joining something larger than yourselves in the pursuit, in what I believe, is to be a more stable and more democratic and more prosperous
1: world. Thank you. Our next speaker is Francois Briard. He is president of the Paris chapter of the Federalist Society. I heard a snicker or two. Uh, But I'm told that he's having an increasingly difficult time finding a large enough meeting room. Isn't that right? Uh, He's a French Supreme Court, or Supreme Courts probably is more accurate, uh, attorney, and represents major U.S. companies in France. He has worked on issues of Franco-American trade, foreign investments in France, uh, economic intelligence. Mr. Briard is president of the Virgin Institute, which he co-founded with Justice Scalia. The Institute seeks to foster cooperation between the French and United States Supreme Courts. He is a member of the Board of Trustees of Sarah Lawrence, and he has published widely, lectured in this country and abroad, including uh, last spring at the Yale Law School. Mr. Briard.
3: Well, I just need to plug my laptop. Some light on the, on the screens, it would be fine. Okay, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, ladies and gentlemen. It is a great uh, honor uh, for me to be uh, with you today for the opening of the Federalist Society annual meeting. Uh, I may be the very first French since uh, the Louisiana Purchase uh, uh, to have been invited uh, to discuss with the Federalist lawyers. But do not worry, I'm not here to repurchase America. uh, Nor to advertise for Ségolène Royal, the champion of the socialist party uh, for our next uh, presidential election. Actually, I'm very proud to be here and happy to talk about uh, democracy. I'd like to thank uh, President Eugene Meyer and my friend, Vice President Leonard Leo. You know, Leonard is a FF. FF means Federalist and Francophile. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, to you all for welcoming uh, a non-American who perhaps can bring you, I hope, some uh, new views on a familiar American uh, issue. But When I heard of the topic we will talk about this morning, uh, I thought it was perhaps quite uh, risky to ask a French attorney to talk uh, about uh, a limited government. Uh, uh, (laughs) I, I looked at our history uh, and I found uh, uh, people uh, who probably <laughs> were not exactly uh, true models of democracy and limited government, <laughs> uh, including uh, modern l- leaders. Uh, uh, so uh, I could have made a very academic talk. Uh, uh, this is the French Academy, and you know when you speak at this place, it, you need about 45 minutes, but I know I have about 12. of, And uh, I could have talked to you about the French Enlightenment, uh, human rights, sun rising on the French republics and on the world, but it would be too long and too boring. So I'd like to take you this morning, uh, 10, about 10 minutes, to the south of our country. Uh, uh, try to close your eyes uh, and, and uh, to feel at a terrace of a lovely cafe listening to one French man and one American talking about some interesting issues limited government and spreading democracy what should an American and a European say to each other uh, sharing the same revolutionary origins in megalomania and messianism about democracy well, first, the American says, hey, you French great humanist, uh, and believing that state can do everything but changing a man into a woman. Uh, have, have you heard of a U.S. doctrine about spreading democracy? Uh, and first, you French, you Europeans, have you heard about limited government? Uh, the French says, I have no clue about limited government. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, It must be an American idea uh, dealing with federalism. I heard of the 10th Amendment. Uh, Yes, I heard about that, rights of states and limits to federal government. But we have known here, uh, as you know, Europe is very far from being a federation. Uh, And why do you want to limit government? The will of the majority is everything in Europe. Then all decisions become political. Remember Mr. Prodi's recent declaration. Mr. Prodi, as you know, is the president of the European Commission. He said, Europe is on the left side. We have to fight for welfare, state, solidarity. Governments have to be strong, respected, active almost everywhere, including social culture. And then we have that fantastic and super Brussels technocracy. It's so nice to have 15,000 civil servants only in Brussels taking care of our community. The American says, okay, don't you think there is some deficit about democracy in the EU mess? Don't you think uh, it's time to get more legitimacy in EU law? And the French says, well, don't be too critical, my friend. You say democracy, well, it may work, uh, government in the free consent of the people. Yes, we know. We know. We have some history about that. But remember that good effects of democracy are not guaranteed. You know, free elections and a happy future? Well, see the French terror, democratic ideas to support violence and crime. See the the Weimar Republic, which was a very modern democracy, sophisticated institution, but a wonderful springboard to the Nazi power. So the... Uh, 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 the American says you French are so cynical and then the French says but remember what our president said uh, uh, on September 4th 2006 at the United Nations you have to think of international law and sovereignty democracy has to race by itself how you Americans can talk about the rule of law and violate international law How can you promote limitation of power inside individuals, private enterprise, and citizens first, and you expand power outside through public policies? And what do you do, you Americans, with sovereignty, which was the very first freedom uh, you got in this country before other liberties when you left Mother England? Uh, So the American says, uh, okay, so you prefer to leave Albanians being killed in Kosovo, uh, Iraqis murdered by Saddam, genocides, atrocities, failing states, and you, Europeans, you do nothing. I thought that you Europeans, especially French, had a universal idea uh, about human rights. And by the way, uh, I thought that uh, the, the, the idea of intervention, the right to intervention was... A European idea by Mario Bettati, 1974, who was a student of the French Chief Justice René Cassin and taken over by the French Dr. Bernard Kouchner. What did you do with the eight post-communist states who joined EU in 2004? You did not promote democracy to them? And my friend, don't you think that defense of human rights sometimes becomes political and, and a super legality overruling the international law. Well the French says uh, yes you're right but you know intervention often denies geopolitics and never goes against the one who is strong. Uh, are you going to try to liberate the Tibetan people from the yoke of China? Well you just cannot standardize democracy in its Western form. When pretending to order the world, you make it just more messy. Political institutions are not moving worldwide like iPods, gas stations, and computer jeeps. So the American says, so we do agree on nothing. Remember, we have a wonderful story together. We are both attached to individualism, freedom. Separation of powers, democracy, limitation of power by the rule of law, and we uh, disagree. Uh, So how could we have a common message uh, uh, about limited government and spreading democracy? How can we go beyond the two visions uh, you can find very often uh, on both sides of the ocean? So the French says, I got an idea. The American says, it happens to you sometimes. Good. <laughs> and the American says, I got one too. So the French, okay. If we say that individuals are first, uh, government has to be limited. Can't we agree on one principle, which would be spreading democracy is the work of individuals first before any public policy. Let's take my compatriot, Montesquieu, by chance. Well, he was 100% French and, you know, he belongs to the founding fathers of America's constitutional identity. Uh, Montesquieu, so what? Well, Montesquieu was not acting as a French agent. He was an individual without any government support. He wrote, The Spirit of the Laws just alone in his chateau. So the American says, you're right. Revolution was made here first in the minds and in the hearts of the people, as as said John Adams. James Madison has to be mentioned, too, about individual references. And what to say about the founding fathers, all individuals? Yes, that's the first idea. Democracy is spread by individuals first. Civil society and outside powers do have a major role in spreading democracy. From the 18th century circulation of ideas to the 21st century global world, democracy ideals are spread by individuals, intellectuals before governments. So being a federalist and spreading democracy are compatible. The right way to spread good democracy is first to encourage and develop individuals and conservative minds, especially among law professors, judges, and uh, attorneys. So the American says, okay, so let's have a a, a last uh, uh, discussion. How can we agree on some other things regarding the content of ideas which have to be spread? Do we seek, are you looking for cows or are are we looking for convergence? The Frenchman says, I'm not sure it exists, but let's try. Okay. So the American. May I ask you some questions? First, what does subsidiarity mean in the EU law? And the French says it means members' states are first. What belongs to them has to be respected, and the community shall act within the limits of its power, and furthermore, only if the action is better achieved, by the community. The American says, good, it reminds me something. Uh, And uh, uh, how do you limit power in in Europe? I mean, uh, referring to European thinkers. Well, the French says, we have learned from our compatriot, Montesquieu, again, the way to limit power is by power. We think that only power can stop power, and also that separation has to be strict, has to be even rigid. It must tend to equilibration, but has to be rigid not for the efficiency of government, but to protect individual freedom. And also, limitation of power comes with the rule of law, no liberty without the rule of law. We Europeans know very well about the encroaching nature of power and the necessity to limit its aggressiveness, to contain it in legitimate boundaries including and perhaps first parliaments as you do in America. We like our nations to be nations of laws and not nations of men. And you know there is something we think it is, it, which is very universal in the U.S. Constitution. That's the Guarantee clause, Article 4, Section 3, the, Republic, the Republican form of the uh, government. The American says, good, these are good ideas. I think we, we share them. May I ask you another question? Why, with whom does sovereignty rest? Other French says, not, not necessarily with parliament. It rests with the people. So sovereignty belongs to the people as, and is given on loan to a government. The American says, good, good, that's very fine. Uh, And let's just ask me uh, 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 some basic questions uh, to uh, close our talk. Uh, uh, Why does the state exist? And the Frenchman says uh, not uh, uh, for itself, but to preserve freedom, uh, which is the best uh, economic system consistent with human freedom and dignity, free enterprise. Why do we have to promote the supremacy of the rule of law? Uh, Just to limit government uh, powers and functions to protect from the majority. Uh, Finally, the American says, I heard of uh, great European thinkers named Descartes, Montaigne, Montesquieu, Tocqueville, Bastiat. Do you think they could help us to build something together? And the Frenchman says, yes. Well, just in a few words, Descartes. He was the champion of the personalist and self-thinking, a wonderful way to personal and social responsibility. Think of Montaigne. He is the true individualist and unique thinker about human nature. Think of Tocqueville, Democracy in America, the best book ever written not only on democracy and on America, but also on influence of democracy as uh, James Madison Tocqueville feared uh, majority tyranny. And we can also mention Frédéric Bastiat, the champion of the free market and free enterprise. So, 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 we do understand that we have a lot in common. And uh, so the Frenchman says, now let me ask you the very final question. Uh, To supporters of limited government, What is democracy made for? And the American says, I would recommend you to read a foreign and individual thinker, Friedrich Hayek. He is very clear about your question. He says, do not make democracy a fetish. Do not talk too much about democracy. Democracy is not the goal, the finality, the end. Democracy is a mean, either is a way. The final goal is freedom, individual freedom. This is very important to understand. To understand that democracy may avoid arbitrary, but also can be a dictatorship of majority and idea. The value, the true value, is individual freedom. And the Frenchman says, Okay, so, Ned, now let's have another glass of French wine together. But uh, before we raise a toast, uh, can you tell me a place where we could meet to discuss about these ideas? Furthermore, the American says, "Yes, I know a place. The name is the Federalist Society." Thank you.
1: I can't resist. The, the Frenchman mentions subsidiarity, which is from the Maastricht Treaty, and it's operating on states. And the American says, I'm reminded of something. You know what he was reminded of? Yeah. The Articles of Confederation. <laughs> <laughs> Our next speaker is Tom Palmer. He is Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and Director of Cato University, which is the Institute's educational arm. He is also director of the Byrne Project uh, on Middle East Liberty, which sponsors an Arabic language libertarian website and is publishing books on the subject. Before joining Cato, Mr. Palmer was an H.B. Earhart Fellow at Hertford College, Oxford University, and president of the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University. He regularly lectures on political science, civil society, and other topics in this country and abroad. Mr. Palmer.
4: Thank you very much. It's an honor uh, to be here. And I have to say, my heart was really warm to see one of my great heroes, Bastiat, up there. And I'll mention in a moment, one of my life projects is to translate the works of Bastiat into every written language on the planet. And so far we've gotten 11, and I have a few more to go. Uh, Let's launch right into our discussion of democracy. It's an essentially contested concept, as they say in political theory. Or as Ronald Dworkin would say, We all have the concept of democracy. We can talk about it meaningfully, but we have different conceptions of it. And if we don't get clear on what conception we're invoking, there's going to be confusion rather than actual conversation. Uh, I'd like to uh, remind us of this because it's something that's been forgotten in American foreign policy. In 1819, Benjamin Constant, often cited as a Frenchman, although technically he was Swiss, uh, discussed the difference between ancient liberty and modern liberty, wonderful essay that really identifies the key issues. He said of ancient liberty, it consisted in exercising collectively but directly several parts of the complete sovereignty, in deliberating in the public square over war and peace, in forming alliances with foreign governments, in voting laws, pronouncing judgments, examining the accounts, the acts the stewardship of the magistrates, in calling them to appear in front of the assembled people, in accusing, condemning, or absolving them. But if this is what the ancients called liberty, they admitted as compatible with this collective freedom the complete subjection of the individual to the authority of the community. You find among them them almost none of the enjoyments which we have seen form part of the liberty of the moderns. And Constant's concern was modern liberty rather than this focus on democracy. We were warned again, uh, fifty. four years ago, J.L. Talman, in his wonderful book on the origins of totalitarian democracy, that democracy is not an inherently liberal concept. Fried Zakaria also, in his very good book recently, The Future of Freedom, Illiberal Democracy at Home and Abroad, also focused on the possibility of illiberal democracy. And Iran, which was mentioned earlier, is a fairly good example of that. Plausibly, a democratic state, you can change power through elections. It is not indeed even a single-party totalitarian state. It has a multitude of different power centers, but hardly a liberal society, hardly an example of modern liberty. The dangers of unlimited democracy should be obvious to all who will but consult history. For one thing, it undermines itself. You get the principle of one man, one vote, one time, which is one of the legacies of modern democratic thinking. Students of Roman history should be aware of the dangers of Marian-style democratic movements, which tend to focus power on one man or one party as the carrier of the will of the people. A desirable democracy, indeed a democracy that is stable, that can persist in any sense, requires limited government. For example, a democracy requires a loyal opposition. This is what we just witnessed in American politics. One party has replaced the other in control of the Congress, and one expects the opposition to be a loyal opposition. They're not going to take to the streets or blow up train stations because they lost the election. But that is impossible, or at least extremely unlikely, If the losers who would form the opposition fear that by losing an election, they risk losing everything, their goods, their property, their rights, perhaps even their lives. You cannot have a loyal opposition without a concept of limitations on power and limits on the power of the party that has won to punish those who lost. Liberals, and I include in that Most, probably all, of the people in this room, regardless of what you may call yourselves in the context of American or French uh, politics, we are all liberals. We reject the single-minded focus on popular sovereignty that constitutes so much of the discourse of modern democracy and instead favor constitutional liberalism, which crucially includes a democratic component, what we just witnessed in America today. The people went out and turned one party out of office and put another party in charge of the Congress. But that requires an explicit and clear limitation on the domain of public choice. It must be limited or it will not be stable. But not only does stable and lasting democracy require a framework of limited government, a democratic polity requires a separation of powers, most particularly a judiciary that is at least substantially independent of swings in the popular mood and of undue influence from the elected or popular branches of government. Mansur Olson, the late political economist, very neatly pointed out and I quote, the conditions that are needed to have the individual rights necessary for maximum economic development are exactly the same conditions that are needed to have a lasting democracy. A democracy is not viable if individuals, including the leading rivals of the administration power lack the rights to free speech and to security for their property and contracts or if the rule of law is not followed even when it calls for the current administration to leave office. The same court system and independent judiciary and respect for law and individual rights that are needed for a lasting democracy are also those required for security of property and contract rights. So there's a very close connection between democracy, the rule of law and also economic and social development. Douglas North, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and his co-author Barry Weingast in a series of papers also pointed out the key role of constitutionalism in bringing about commitments by those in power. Once they've made a commitment, you have the problem of time and consistency. You make a commitment to get an office, but now you're in power. You have no more incentive to fulfill your commitment. What you need is a system that can require them, force them, to fulfill their commitments, including commitments to respect for individual rights. The second point that I'd like to bring up, however, is that such a system of limited government is an achievement. This is what has been forgotten in recent years, particularly in this country. It is an accomplishment. Students of constitutional history know very well the struggles, the compromises, the bitter fights that went into that achievement. It is not the natural equilibrium to which human societies move if some little obstacle is removed. But what we have been treated to in this country is an astonishingly naive understanding or misunderstanding of law and social and political development in which we were told by the now much maligned neoconservatives that all you need to do is get rid of this dictator, some psychopath who stands in the way of a society moving to its natural equilibrium. And as we all know, the natural equilibrium of human societies is Oregon. That's the default (laughs) condition. They'd all be in Oregon if we got rid of the little thing that's keeping us from getting there. In this case, a psychopath and the bath party. The single-minded focus on elections in the constitution of a democracy or its definition has had, I believe, very serious negative consequences for the promotion of authentically liberal democracy because the more foundational and indeed those inherently valuable elements of liberal democracy have been neglected, as have been the historical processes that tend to produce them. And I think that we've witnessed this in Iraq uh, very, uh, very, very clearly. Our president misunderestimated underestimated not only the difficulty of actually creating a liberal democracy, but also the wickedness and evil of our enemies. Al-Qaeda in Iraq does not want to expel the United States from Iraq. They want to drag us deeper and deeper and deeper. That's their purpose. And the destruction of the Golden Shrine of samara I think the real turning point, was a deliberate attempt to provoke a terrible civil war. And our political leaders did not understand that there are actually bad and wicked people on this planet who want maximum destruction, who hate liberal democracy, and who will do anything imaginable to stop it coming about. I think that the naivete, quite often I'm, uh, when I'm in Europe, I'm irritated by European intellectuals who claim Americans are naive and they don't speak foreign languages well, roughly like most of the French, uh, and so on. And usually I find it irritating, but in this case, it's spot on. Our leaders were astonishingly naive about the conditions for the creation of constitutional liberalism. Third... Attempts to export or promote democracy by military force have demonstrably negative effects on our own system of constitutional government, and we ignore them at our peril. Since we have had this shift to a war mentality, and I should point out a fundamentally irrational, and I'll be very blunt, stupid mentality, the war on terrorism is the most misconceived war imaginable because terrorism is a tactic and you cannot wage war on a tactic an organization or a network such as Al-Qaeda or foreign states such as the Third Reich or the Soviet Union you can wage war on them but waging war on a tactic is an open-ended commitment you never know when you won you'll never know when it's over you'll never know whether you've made progress fundamental mistake but since that shift to a war mentality We have seen the serious erosion of our civil liberties, and notably, to many of us at least, the most horrifying effective suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, the most important guarantee of our liberties, more important in my opinion, than elections and political campaigns, that simple Anglo-Saxon legal principle. We have seen the ballooning of governmental powers, An administration and a Congress that have spent money faster than any other administration since LBJ. The creation of enormous new bureaucracies that are little more than agents of corruption of our constitutional system, spreading largesse and pork-barrel politics all throughout the country. Enormous increases in governmental handouts and interventions into social and economic relations, and all of it justified in terms of this war on terrorism and the necessity to promote democracy. President Bush very early came out swinging on behalf of big, 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 big government when he brought back the farm subsidies, which he pointed out it was a national security interest. In a speech to the National Cattlemen's Association, he said it's in our national security interest that we be able to feed ourselves. I suppose. He says, thank goodness we don't have to rely on somebody else's meat to make sure our people are healthy and well fed. A better argument for subsidizing American agriculture has never been made than that and justified in terms of this promotion of the war on terror. I'd like to conclude uh, with two things. One is a quotation from one of our other speakers who's about to come up from an editorial in the Weekly Standard Uh, from 2003 in December, uh, ringing endorsement of the Bush foreign policy and the promotion of democracy as our central element of our foreign policy. Quote, Bush has made it clear that the only exit strategy from Iraq is a victory strategy, with victory defined as democracy. So I'd like to, I hope there'll be some discussion by the author of those remarks uh, shortly. But I'd like to conclude by echoing Mr. Briard's comments that the promotion of liberalism is not something that we should leave to government. It is something we can do as individual citizens. My colleagues and I are very active in this. We have published uh, Hayek, uh, Bastiat, uh, Montesquieu, Adam Smith in Arabic, Persian, in Kurdish, and Azeri. Uh, These have never appeared in those languages before. We run seminars. Uh, for young bloggers, for journalists throughout the Middle East we just had a program in the Republic of Georgia with people from 28 different nations Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, all the scary stands uh, (laughs) as well as uh, the entire former Soviet Union and the peripheral countries including Iran, Iraq uh, Turkey and so on to ask the hard questions uh, of how they can create the rule of law how they can enjoy the blessings of individual liberty. So I would encourage you to, when you think about these things, do not leave it to our incompetent federal government to promote liberalism. This is something that is the job of citizens. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Judge Randolph. This is... very uh, interesting panel. One of the most unusual panels I've ever been on, I would say. A Democrat, a Frenchman, a federal judge, a libertarian—four <laughs> dubious groups. <laughs> but, but these are the uh, these are the best representatives of all these groups, I would say. <laughs> so it's, uh, some of my best friends are, well, <laughs> not right. <laughs> Some of my acquaintances are Democrats <laughs> and uh, <laughs> libertarians, federal judges, Frenchmen, actually. It's, um, no, it's been an interesting discussion. I, uh, it's also a pleasure to be here with the Federalist Society. I've, I guess, spoken at many and appeared at many and visited many Federal Society conventions and chapters. Uh, I think I was a bit player at the beginning of the Federalist Society at the origins uh, in the early 1980s with Lee Lieberman and Dave McIntosh, Steve Calabrese, Peter Peter Keisler. Uh, The late Mike Joyce, who then ran the Olin Foundation, moved on to the Bradley Foundation. It was so important in creating many, actually, intellectual and political institutions that have played such a big part, I think, in the rise of the conservative movement, of the constitutionalist and uh, libertarian and traditionalist efforts over the last uh, 25, 30 years. Um, I very much admire what the Federal Society has accomplished. And I just want to say, before getting into the topic for 30 seconds, don't don't relax and don't uh, you've made great progress over 25 years in the law schools and the bar and uh, the public discourse really on constitutional matters I really believe that to be true I mean one forgets what it was like in 1980 when you know Bob Bork was a lonely law professor and you know Scalia was a lonely law professor and that was about it I would say in terms of there was not much of a revival Cato was maybe just didn't quite exist I can't remember there were a couple of um, Hayek was barely known uh, um, the whole recapturing of a constitutionalist tradition with all of its differences within itself, um, the ca- recapturing of the thought of the founders had barely begun in the academy, and obviously things were very different on the federal bench and, and uh, in the public debates. Um, I was thinking, as Republicans lost the Senate a week ago, that it did remind me of 1986, 20 years ago, when I had first come to Washington, uh, to work for Bill Bennett in 85. I watched them lose the Senate in 86. Didn't really realize at the time that the main effect of that would be that Bob Bork would be defeated in uh, 1987 for his Supreme Court uh, in a Supreme Court fight. You know, Scalia had been confirmed in 86 by a Republican Senate. Rehnquist had been promoted. Uh, his, his promotion to Chief Justice had been confirmed, ratified by a Republican Senate in 86. A Democratic Senate defeated Bob Bork in 87. And I would hate to see history repeat itself, having had Robertson and Alito confirmed by a Republican Senate in, 19, uh, in 2005, and, um, and then uh, to have uh, uh, lose the Senate a president who, like Ronald Reagan, whatever his other flaws on these matters of judicial appointments, has been pretty good, actually, and tried to do the right thing and taken pretty good advice most of the time. A couple of mid-course corrections there, which we won't, which we'll pass over in silence. Um, It would be a shame, uh, but, and I would say this, one should not give up. I I myself think I know nothing. I have no inside knowledge that Justice Stevens could well step down uh, at the end of term in 2007, so we could have a very similar sort of analogous situation to the Bork nomination, uh, but I would not give up because there's a Democratic Senate. uh, Justice Thomas was confirmed by a Democratic Senate, as I vividly remember, in October of 1991, something I worked on a little bit when I was Dan Quayles, Chief of Staff, with Lee Lieberman and Mike Ludig and many others who have been associated with the Federalist Society. And um, it will be very important. I know you guys don't get directly involved in political matters, but uh, as an individual matter, I think it will be very important to be uh, engaged now more than ever. The next two years are awfully important, really, for the constitutionalist cause on the lower courts, on the Supreme Court, uh, at the state level, and obviously then what happens after 2008 is important as well. So the Federalist Society has made great strides, but in a way, the biggest challenges now are to come. This is the moment, really, where uh, you, one could make a fundamental difference in the history of the country, or one could slide back again. And the defeat of Bork really set back the cause on the Supreme Court, if you think about it, for 20 years, really. Because I think the first President Bush, one reason he nominated David Souter in 1990 was what he took to be the lessons of Bork, that you couldn't nominate someone with a conservative record or, constitutionalist record, and we know the implications of that. Well, enough about that. I just want to encourage you all to be engaged and not too depressed, if you are depressed over last week, and the, uh, the broader fight certainly continues. You know, I, I don't think there, there's, of course, uh, we'll stipulate there are tensions between uh, liberty and democracy. Every intelligent person has understood that. There are tensions between elections and limited government. They tend to go together much more often than not, I would nonetheless point out. Elections is a very important part of preserving liberty. Self-government is a very important part of liberty. So one shouldn't overdo, I think, the hostility of these two elements. And I would just begin by saying as a practical matter, it can't just be an accident or a fluke, that the strongest advocates of restoring constitutionalist government in the United States have also been the strongest advocates on the whole of a strong U.S. foreign policy, which has included fighting for American principles abroad and, where possible, promoting American democracy abroad. Reagan and Bush are certainly the two presidents most associated with that point of view, and they're also the two presidents who have done the most uh, at home for the sake of restoring constitutionalist government. Generally speaking, if you care a lot about liberty, if you care a lot about constitutional democracy, um, if you care a lot about constitutional self-government, you will care a lot about strengthening it or restoring it or correcting it at home, and you will do what you can to defend it and promote it abroad. This isn't as much of a tension as people sometimes make it seem. And I would say, as a, again, it's a practical matter, an inward-looking focus entirely on our own liberties A defensive attempt to simply preserve our constitutional order and let everyone else fend for themselves or let them take five centuries to develop (coughs) all the appropriate social structures before they can be ready for constitutional self-government will not work. It will not strengthen constitutional government here at home, uh, in my view. And I think there's a lot of historical evidence for that. Waiting for people to fix themselves, Judge Randolph amusingly referred to, you know, the sensible advice to change before you (coughs) change others, change yourself. Uh, It's true enough, but, you know, we were a deeply flawed republic in 1939 and 1941. We had, you know, to say, obviously, segregation being the most obvious instance. This was the America. It was the U.S. of Plessy v. Ferguson. It was the U.S. of Korematsu, for that matter. It was the U.S. of the court packing plan that went abroad and defeated the Germans and the Japanese. And it didn't make it any less legitimate to do it because FDR had tried to monkey with the court and because... One part of our constitutional law was based, I think, on a deeply flawed understanding of the 14th Amendment, which we've since repudiated. You can't wait all the time to fix everything at home before trying to defend yourself and defend your friends abroad. It's true that we were attacked on December 7th, 1941. We didn't choose that war. We only went to war when attacked. But I would argue that is that something we're proud of, that we waited till December 7th? 1941. Would it not have been healthier to have been more engaged in Europe in the 30s? Would it not have been healthier to stop that, uh, uh, the slaughter of World War II earlier if we could have? So I think at a theoretical level, and I studied political philosophy, I, I got a degree in it from Harvard, which suggests that I probably have negative knowledge about it, but still I... <laughs> Know a little bit about these arguments. Of course, at a theoretical level, there are tensions and problems, and they shouldn't be minimized. But at a practical level, on the whole, a strong support for liberty at home goes with a strong support for liberty abroad. It's become very fashionable to denigrate elections. Oh, how silly people are! Don't they know that democracy is about, about more than elections? Yes, most Americans know that. I know that. George Bush knows that. In Iraq, the problem was not elections. The elections went incredibly well. The elections showed, actually, that the Iraqi people liked the chance to vote. They voted pretty responsibly. They voted according to ethnic and sectarian lines, but not for the most radical exponents of the different ethnic, uh, uh, of the different factions. And, of course, we voted for decades and still do in some ways along various religious and ethnic lines. I come from a voting group, Jewish Americans, that had the great distinction and I saw in the exit poll a week ago of voting 88 to 12 Democratic, uh, one point behind African-Americans. This is deeply upsetting a lot of my liberal Jewish friends that it didn't quite pass black Americans in their <laughs> totally monolithic and idiotic devotion to the Democratic Party. <laughs> it is actually embarrassing. It makes you wonder about human progress that, anyway, 88 to 12. But. Um, We vote on these lines. The Iraqis voted on these lines. The elections weren't the problem. In Iraq, if anything, incidentally, it was a kind of fancy version, if I can say this, of of, of the kind of point of view Tom was expressing. Ooh, well, we've learned elections don't don't solve everything. We waited too long to get to elections, I would think many observers of Iraq now think. We talked ourselves into the notion that they weren't ready. We spent a year and a half in occupation before letting them vote. In fact, the vote was the best thing that happened in Iraq and arguably – I mean, the fundamental problem in Iraq was the lack of order and the failure to have sufficient troops and the failure to crush uh, uh, the, the insurgency early and crush the sectarian militias early. But leaving that aside, it probably would have been better to go to elections uh, earlier. So I wouldn't minimize the importance of elections. A lot of liberties have come to the world because of an insistence on elections in a lot of countries, including in Asia and including in Central Europe. And an awful lot of liberties have been crushed At the same time that elections were being cancelled, abrogated, or in the case of Iran, severely limited as to who could participate and who could make arguments. So again, there's no automatic, you know, uh, uh, conjoining of elections and democracy, and uh, of elections and liberty, uh, of democracy and liberty, uh, of elections and other freedoms, or of elections and limited government. But on the whole, I would, we, can, we can advance both of these causes together, and we should, because having the right to select one's rulers is an important part of liberty, an important part uh, of freedom. Uh, Tom, uh, if I can just respond quickly to his uh, somewhat ridiculed, the president, for the war on terror. I mean, look, the president was being polite. He didn't call it a war on Islamic jihadism. Maybe he should have from the beginning. I don't know that we paid much of a price for that. People understood what he was talking about. But we are at war with Islamic. Jihadism, And saying we're not doesn't change the fact that we are. You know, what is the, I'll quote Trotsky just to provoke Tom a little more. Uh, I, actually, I actually was never a Trotskyite, and, you know, my father wasn't after age 19, and I've never even really read Trotsky, but I believe one of his famous lines uh, to someone who said he wanted to stay out of politics was, you know, the comrade, you may not be interested in the revolution, but the revolution is interested in you. Um, you know. I mean, some people at Cato, who are, many of whom are friends of mine, might be more interested in farm su- subsidies than in jihad. But, the, you know, even if you're not interested in the jihadists, they're interested in you. <laughs> and, you know, I propose a division of labor that some of us will focus on winning the war against Islamic jihadism. And incidentally, whatever happens in Iraq, we shouldn't kid ourselves. If we have to retreat and withdraw from Iraq, that will be a defeat in that war and it will have very bad consequences. We will have to recover from it. But if it happens, and I don't think it need happen, but if it were to happen, it would be very damaging, and we will pay a big price. So I, I'm, I'm very much for trying to prevent that from happening, but we are at war with Islamic jihadism. But some of us will focus on on that war. Some of us will focus on um, uh, confirming good Supreme Court justices and good uh, lower court just, judges and, and trying to restore constitutional government in America, and I totally support uh, if we can focus on some of us can focus on those two things i 'm happy to support uh, Cato 's attempt to cut farm subsidies <laughs> Thank you
1: why don 't we begin with uh, i don 't know if I should call it rebuttal but comments yes. and uh, we 'll go in the order in which the speakers appear. I just wanted to follow up on this notion of uh, what
2: Tom called the single-minded focus on elections. Um, I will tell you the budget of my organization, we spend about 10 percent on on elections around the world. And if you look at all the U.S. assistance for democracy programs, perhaps it's about 10 percent that are spent on elections. So generally this has been a straw man that's been raised that democracy means more than elections. And I don't think anyone would argue that point. Uh, What concerns me, however, is how that is then extrapolated to somehow poo-poo the notion of elections. Um, There are a number of elections that have gone bad. Um, The Hamas example is an example people raise. The problem with the election in, in the Palestinian territories was not that there were too many elections. The fact was that the elections earlier this year were supposed to be the third election since 1996 and it has been 10 years where the Palestinians have been frustrated over the the authority and perhaps if there had been more elections between 1996 and today we would not have had the outcome and perhaps if if candidacy requirements had had been established which my organization had recommended that it is incompatible to to run for office and advocate violence, elections ultimately about nonviolent means to achieve your political ends, that that would have forced Hamas to make some fundamental decisions if they wanted to participate in an electoral process. They paid no admissions price to enter the electoral arena. Now we are asking Hamas to pay an admissions price for governance. I think that price should have been paid much earlier. But let's not dismiss elections. In Mozambique, there would never have been a Rome Rome agreement if there had not been the prospect of elections. There would not have been a peace agreement in El Salvador if there had not been prospects for elections. There would not have been peace agreement in in Sierra Leone. Um, I doubt whether the roundtable negotiations would have succeeded in Eastern Europe if there had not been the prospect for elections. Um, Elections become a vehicle through which People can express their will. There are lots, Ill, the notion of illiberal democracy is, I think, an oxymoron. Um, a democracy cannot be illiberal. Um, you can say elections are held around the world, but there are bad elections, and there are elections that reflect the will of the people at any particular time. And I happen to believe that the other institutions of democracy are better achieved through governments that believe in some diffusion of political power. It is very hard to imagine that autocratic regimes are somehow going to put into place those institutions that will build the rule of law in their society. I don't believe also that there are two classes of citizens in the world, those citizens that are ready to exercise their fundamental political rights and those that must wait for some indeterminate period of time while autocratic regimes are willing to share power with the people. Um, what is happening today in this growing, as I said, interdependent world, if things are happening on the ground every day, people are in a demanding mood. As Bill said, in Iraq, the great lesson in Bosnia, people said after the Dayton of course, is we shouldn't have had elections early on. And the lesson in Iraq was we should have prepared for elections right away. And what happened was we had hoped that somehow this was all going to come from the bottom up and we found that some guy sitting in his house with a beard and a hat said we're gonna have elections and all of a sudden we were scrambling to conduct elections that should have been done about two two years earlier. So we have to recognize that non-intervention as Carlos Andres Perez once said when he was president of Venezuela and admonishing the OAS for their non-intervention clause, non-intervention is a form of intervention on behalf of autocratic forces in these societies. And I think we have to recognize that events are taking place on the ground, happenings are developing, people are in a demanding mood, and the question is whether the international community broadly, and the United States in particular, has an interest in being engaged in those events in a constructive and productive way. And I think we do not have the luxury to stand back and say these events should take place without engagement. This is no longer the the position of just the United States. You look at the OAS today, that dropped their non-intervention clause and adopted the Santiago Declaration. You look at the role of the organization in security and cooperation in Europe. You look at even the growing role of the United Nations in this field. There is now a growing consensus that the international community broadly, and the democratic nations in particular, have a responsibility and a role, and they can't turn their backs on the events that are unfolding on the ground. uh, Church,
3: uh, Randolph, uh, I, I will be glad to answer some questions, but I have no comments so far.
4: Thanks. Just like to add, uh, I would not dismiss elections. It's sometimes it's easy to set up sort of ideal types. Elections are very, very important. But I do think, despite the question of the percentage of the budget of the NDI, that the U.S. government has put an extraordinary focus on elections in its public diplomacy, and this has been very damaging. I'd like to mention one other thing. When I go to Iraq, when I go to Egypt, when I go to Syria, when I go to Iran, when I go to these countries, what is, number one, one of my biggest problems? The fact I'm an American citizen. And it is believed that I come carrying the policies of the American government, which I have to say have been overall disastrous in certain parts of the world, extremely bad. And consequently, because our president keeps talking about freedom and freedom and freedom, he's given freedom a bad name because that is associated in the public mind with the images we have seen over and over and over from Abu Ghraib. Fairly or not, it doesn't matter. It has besmirched and damaged the image of constitutional liberalism. This is a very serious burden that has been put on those who believe in liberty and want to advance it, that they are consistently painted as agents of the Bush administration or the American government or what have you, when in their own country they're trying to stand up for religious freedom, for freedom of the press, for the right to own and control property, and so on. So I think that much of our public diplomacy, and I'm not criticizing whether NDI is spending its money well or not, and I'm not even criticizing the whole concept of the NED. I think it might have a valuable place. I'd rather spend the million dollars on publishing books than $10 million on a tank. If those were the trade offs, that seems fairly reasonable to me. And it may be that we often do face that kind of a trade off. So I'm not opposed to it in total. But I think overall, it has put an enormous burden on our friends who are trying to promote liberty. The last thing I will point out be very careful what you wish for. If there were an election tomorrow in Egypt, I can tell you who would win. And no one would be happy about that. That is partly because the fascist police state, our government supports there, the Mubarak government, is playing a game with us. They have crushed every other form of liberal opposition except the Muslim Brotherhood, whom they keep under a little jar, an inverted jar full of angry hornets. And occasionally they'll let them out to sting someone. And then they come to Washington and they say, they say, see? See what will happen if we lose power? Give us more money. Give us more police training. Give us more resources. We're being played for suckers in this game by that government, and our leaders have fallen for it. The problem there is, if you move just to elections, there's going to be one election and not a second So be very careful about that. Much more work needs to be done in a country like Egypt than just moving towards having an open democratic system. We've been played for suckers so that there are two polar opposites. The Mubarak regime, which is a malicious police state. One of the young men who came to our conference in Cairo on libertarianism has been imprisoned because on his blog, and the the young man, I warned him not to do this, he put his name and his photograph in his university and where he lives on his blog and attacked the fact that the police stood by and watched Christians being hacked to death in the streets of his town. And he said, why, and he's a Muslim, but he said, why did the police do nothing? Well, he's in prison right now uh, because of this. Uh, it is a fascist police state that we are paying for and is being pr- presented as this is American foreign policy in the Arab world. And we're paying a very, very dear price, uh, high price, for that policy.
5: Actually, I I mean, i rather agree with that last uh, statement, but um, it seems to me that supports Bush's basic sense that we can't forever prop up authoritarian regimes, that one problem with propping (laughs) them up is the uh, resentment spilled and it's good recruiting ground for... Uh, terrorist organizations and extremists, and then at some point one has to make decisions about whether one is willing to run some short-term risks or whether one is going to endlessly prop up these authoritarian regimes. Now, I salute Tom and others who are doing what they can uh, educationally and through conferences and publications, and I don't minimize that at all. That's really important. But at the end of the day, I think we would probably agree that the U.S. government should do more, not less, to support those who are trying to exercise civil liberties in Egypt. The U.S. government should do more or U.S. citizens at least should do more not less to get translations and publications into the hands of people in Egypt but when a police state cracks down you need a government to weigh in and say wait a second you'll pay a price for cracking down so maybe there's more agreement than one might think on this panel really in terms of at least supporting let's say liberal efforts in dictatorships um, whether, one, you know, whether one goes to a we can't force elections there uh, in any case but i I guess I really do disagree that, but I think Tom's last point cuts against his first point. I don't, dissidents I talk to around the world do not complain that the U.S. is doing too much. They complain the U.S. is doing too little to support liberalism and democracy in these different nations. And I would myself agree with that. And we are now in a difficult position because we have a situation where there are dictatorships and, and, uh, and uh, extremist groups that have grown up in opposition to these dictatorships. I just do not think for 20 or 30 years, though, we can go on propping up Mubarak or the son of Mubarak in Egypt and the next generation of the House of Saud in Saudi Arabia and the next generation of Assads in Syria and pretend that that's going to sort of keep a cap on the Middle East. And so I think Bush, in clumsy ways at times, and and I'm worried in Iraq and really uh, in in ways that were just badly executed, so badly executed that they actually endanger the mission. Nonetheless, Bush at least had the correct insight that that couldn't go on And then we had to try to change the situation there because otherwise one has the conjunction of terror and uh, jihadism and weapons of mass destruction in ways that are just incredibly, incredibly dangerous. So I I take uh, Tom's last intervention actually to support a reasonably interventionist stance towards promoting liberty abroad, maybe with some disagreements about the role of the government, the priority one puts on elections, but in terms of spending a $1 million on books or $10 million on tanks, I wish tanks only cost $10 million, but let's say $100 million on tanks or $40 million on tanks, I guess, um, I think we need to spend much more on both. I would say really and tr- truthfully, and this I think we might have some agreement on, the, one of the greatest failures in the Bush administration, given the incredibly dangerous and challenging world environment we face, was not uh, being serious enough institutionally and in terms of resources about any of these challenges, the size of the military we need in a post-9/11 world, the kinds of diplomatic and educational efforts we need in a post-9/11 world—I mean, the transformation of the State Department, the improved intelligence—there, I think, the president, whose instincts are pretty good, just hasn't insisted on the kind of change in our ability to help promote liberty around the world, uh, and, and we're now at risk of falling short.
2: Bill, if there is, if, if there is, though, a legitimate criticism over. Uh, rhetoric and reality is because the President has been so consistent and so firm in terms of his rhetorical commitment to democracy, the inconsistencies in the application of that become even more glaring. Uh, When an election is 50-50, irregularities take on an added significance than an election is 60-40. And so therefore, the critics would argue um, that the Democracy Club has been used more forcefully against autocrats who are adversaries of the United States than autocrats who are friendly to the United States. Um, we don't apply the same standards in Venezuela as we do in, in, in Pakistan. Um, uh, the vice president's speech in, in, uh, in Vilnius, in which he was rightfully critical of Russia and then flew to uh, 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 Astana, and, and gave quite a different uh, uh, picture of the government in Kazakhstan. So, and nobody expects states to become, act like the National Endowment for Democracy um, or, or act like a, an organization that is engaged in democracy. But how you balance these, these interests and how you balance those interests and that commitment to, to the rhetoric, I think is a, is a challenge. But the rhetoric has created a debate in the Middle East and I think in the case of, of Egypt, I think, Tom, your analysis is exactly right. There is a symbiotic relationship between the Muslim Brotherhood and, and the regime. And interestingly enough, the Muslim Brotherhood does not have to play by the same rules that political parties have to play, play by. But ultimately, the issue is not the regime and, and the brotherhood. The issue is whether space is ever going to be provided for a third world in, a third way in that society to emerge. And ultimately, that opening has to take place. And prior to that opening, we have to engage in supporting those forces,
6: I think.
1: We'll take uh, questions from the audience. I,
6: I have a question. Uh, I think there is a, a couple of historical examples of where America has been exceptionally uh, successful in transform, transforming authoritarian regimes, which was uh, Jap- Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. Now, obviously, those circumstances were very different, uh, but if you look at the history of those nations, they had centuries of dictatorships, authoritarian regimes, no real sense of democracy. Now, I was wondering if we are ignoring the lessons that we learned in World War II, or whether or not we can draw from those lessons to help us uh, in today's world.
4: Anybody? If I can address it, I think that that's a fundamental mistake to view those cases as centuries of dictatorship that were transformed in a short period of time to democracy. Germany had a long history of liberalism, a long history of the rule of law. Think about the Magdeburg cities and Magdeburg constitutionalism. Uh, That's simply a false characterization of Germany. They had a horrifying dictatorship that preceded uh, the occupation, but they had a very long period of time of civil society. Bürgerliche Gesellschaft... It's a distinctively German concept, civil society. Even in the case of Japan, Japan had a constitutional period. They sent their lawyers uh, to Prussia when actually Prussia had a relatively liberal constitution and copied it as well as the German civil code and established a functioning legal system. So I think that uh, that would be erroneous. So these are uh, characterizations. These are not good models uh, for the Middle East, which has a very, very different uh, historical trajectory from either Japan or Germany? you think Haiti's a better model?
5: <laughs> I, mean, I would just say the... I mean, I think the Middle East is a much tougher question. I mean, I would not... Let's get beyond Japan and Germany, which have their own unique characteristics, obviously such massive destruction and total occupation and total discrediting of the preceding dictatorships. East, I would say, generally speaking, in East Asia, in South Asia, and in Latin America, the the debate between culture makes democracy, liberal democracy, very, very hard because they don't have certain traditions. I'm giving you cartoon (laughs) versions of the two points of view, obviously. And, you know, liberal democracy is something people everywhere aspire to and with some help and some difficulties can achieve more quickly than one might think if one were, you know, Sam Huntington or if one were more of a cultural determinist. I would say Much of the empirical evidence over the last 50 years in Asia and in Latin America is pretty good for the pro-democracy promotion argument. The Middle East, I think, is just seems very, very, is very, very different because of perhaps because of religion, because of other problems in the Arab world that are fairly unique. You know, the real lack of the traditions Tom was talking about. The, the lack of any of the much greater lack or repression, they once had it, you know, of intellectual and, le- and uh, uh, legal, uh, uh, jurisprudential, um, uh, philosophical traditions, uh, and religious traditions that uh, all these other parts of the world had in different ways. So the Middle East is tougher. On the other hand, the Middle East is also the most dangerous, and I don't think we can simply sort of put the Middle East, you know, put a wall around the Middle East and say, well, that part of the world we're going to just sort of stay away from and wait for them to spend a few centuries catching up because, as we learned on 9-11, they, you know, we, we can ignore the Middle East, but it's not going to ignore us.
0: Yes, sir. I just read off. Thanks. Uh, having lived seven of the last ten years in Europe, um, I'll make an observation first that pre-9-11, uh, pre-the Iraq War, uh, as an American abroad – you're, you're, you are the target, just as Francois here was was, was sort of the, the target of the generalizations of the French, defend the French, so too as an American, you know, that, that's just the way it is as you're abroad. But it brings up the, the, the deeper question then, and, and that is, has America done a very bad job at PR, essentially? You know, what are the blessings of liberty? Why should you want to fight for this on the individual level? Uh, and again, ha- having lived abroad, I... Of course, my view is, yes, we've done a very poor job at outward PR. And I wonder if there shouldn't be more efforts devoted at promoting free press, uh, having outward extensions of having them come to America, report back in their own view, in their own cultural uh, 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 bifocals about what is America and why is it promoting what it considers as individual liberties. Uh, And I just pose that question to the panel.
5: Maybe I can just make one very brief comment and let others answer it more. We shouldn't be too Eurocentric in thinking about the world. I mean, Europe is important, and Europe once was even much much more important than it is now. Um, But it's just not – I mean, let's just be empirical here. Uh, India is much more pro-American than it was 15 or 20 years ago. The people of China, so far as one can tell, are reasonably pro-American, and I think – It would be healthy if we could do more in the civil society, and Cato's done stuff there, front to promote liberal and democratic ideas in China because I think that regime ultimately may have to accommodate to a desire for that. Um, Latin America, mixed bag, but again, actually less bad than it was thought to be 25, 30 years ago where whole books were written about how endemic anti-Americanism is in Latin America. You know, despite problems with immigration on the border, Mexico is now elected twice, much more moderate and pro-American presidents than one would have thought likely 20 or 30 years ago. The rest of Latin America is a mixed bag, but not, not terrible in the biggest countries, at least. Um, so I think we turn, it turns out that contrary to what people expected, there is a bigger cultural, sociological gap between the US and Europe than people thought 20 or 30 years ago. We sort of turn out to have quite a different view, and Bob Kagan and many others have written a lot about this. Mark Stein has, focuses on this in his excellent new book. We have quite different views about how the world can be organized, should be organized, about the importance of the nation state, about military force, about religion, about a lot of other things. So it turns out that Europe, I think, has a kind of feels a distance from America, and Americans incidentally feel much more of a distance from Europe than, 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 with, than we, any of us thought likely or possible, I think, growing up when we were such close cousins in a way compared to the rest of the world. That's the world. That's the 21st century. I don't think it's going to change. I don't think it's going to change. I don't think that means we have to be terribly hostile to Europe or or, or aggravate them more than necessary. I think we have been incompetent, though that's sometimes fun. (laughs) We have been somewhat incompetent in our public diplomacy in, uh, in various ways, but I just think that's, you know, people really need to start thinking about the new world we live in, and it may turn out that India and Japan and Australia and even parts of Latin America um, and parts of Eastern Europe perhaps uh, have more in common in thinking about the world we're living in than some of the uh, central members of, uh, of the EU. And it's an uncomfortable thing if one is so used to thinking of sort of you know, European-American civilization, but I don't think that's going to be the way the 21st century moves ahead.
1: Okay,
3: yeah. I, I'd like to add something. About the distance you are talking about, Bill, I do understand. But uh, uh, do not—I uh, think it's important not to confuse official positions, uh, government positions, and the people thinking. And I can tell you that uh, I'm not the only one in my country and in Europe to feel very close to your country. For for many, many reasons. Uh, And we are still, we are uh, allowed to think that uh, uh, the U.S. have a very essential uh, role uh, uh, for the freedom of the world. And uh, we all know that our defense and security is not made by Europe. I mean, defense and security in in Brussels is nothing. There is the agency of Mr. Ravi Solana, but the, the main thing is made by NATO. So that, that's that's the reality uh, and uh, also well, you understand that I talked about the power of ideas and I, 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 I'm very glad, to, uh, I was very glad to hear from Tom that we share a lot about that and uh, yes, uh, I think Europe uh, and, and many Europeans still feel very close to the U.S. Yeah.
7: Yes, sir. Okay so earlier on in the discussion the point was raised of individual liberties being a goal of democracy or the goal of democracy so actually Bill's father Irving Kristol in Pornography Obscending and the Case for Censorship wrote about a different conception of democracy where the goal is the furtherance of the good life and the conception of the good life where individual liberties are only a part of that good life So I was wondering if Bill could perhaps talk a little about his father's conception there about the other conception of democracy the other goal
5: An awfully big question. I mean, uh, people should read these essays, and there are many debates about this. This was, um, my father wrote a, law, a critique of Hayek, actually, which is quite interesting, which you know respects, obviously, a priority for liberty, but simply makes the point that liberty has rarely been thought to be the only goal of political society or of democracy. Liberty uh, is a goal. Justice is a goal. A certain degree of stability has to be a goal of any society. Of... Uh, virtue may not be a direct goal that government should pursue, but one would be foolish to simply ignore the character of the society in which one is living in terms of the well-being, the character of the individuals, in terms of the well-being of that society and actually the prospects for liberty. Liberty can't simply defend itself. Certain characteristics of citizens and of societies need to exist to support liberty. People need to be willing to die for liberty, obviously, at times. And that doesn't simply come from a sort of abstract belief that liberty uh, is, is, is a desirable goal. So I, I think liberal democracy is a more complicated entity than some sort of somewhat simple accounts of it would, would, would have it be. And I think people like me might put more priority on, might put as much, almost as much weight on self-government, for example, as a good uh, as individual liberties, qua liberties, and people like me would therefore not be as alarmed as Tom is about the alleged infringements on civil liberties over the last four or five years. Which I think, if you step back and look at them, I have no position on these complicated constitutional debates that the court has, courts have been splitting on. But you know, which seem to me to be very much at the margin, frankly, in terms of the big picture uh, uh, state of liberty in in American society. And I do think that you know one can, in the case of uh, for example pornography one, one had a very one, we have moved to a very purely libertarian close to a purely libertarian situation at some real cost to individual and social well-being and people were not crazy or just blinded by you know, religious uh, blinders in the past when they thought well gee maybe not maybe total self-expression uh, isn't entirely consistent with the kind of character one wants to have uh, in a liberal society, we still see remnants of that in the concern for children and concern for the public s- square and the concern for well, people should do what they want in the privacy of their own homes, but w- it's, it's legitimate to worry a little bit about the tone of public life, et cetera. So I just would say a more complex view of the sort of social preconditions for liberal democracy is sometimes is you know, I, I think is uh, what he was trying to argue for. Tom astutely observed that uh, an election alone a democracy does not make. Given that the last countries we liberated, Iraq and Afghanistan, we allowed to be settled, and particularly Afghanistan, with constitutions that provide for the supremacy of Islamic Sharia law, which, uh, since it provides that no law made by any parliament or constitutional convention can ever prevail if it's in conflict with the law revealed by Allah, do you see any prospect for democracy in these countries even if the current
1: insurgencies should be put down it's not, Have you directed that question to any particular uh, to anyone
5: on the panel who would uh, who would like to answer it
1: well I, I I' just say if you if you look at i
2: I'm, <coughs> I'm not I'm not here as necessarily uh, an advocate for the war in Iraq. If you look, you know, looking at Iraq today, it's almost looking at a split-screen television. Uh, if you look at the politics and if you look at, at the security situation, and ultimately the security screen may ultimately take over the, over the, the politics, um, and that ultimately if the situation is to, to improve, there has to, these screens have to come together. Uh, but if one looks at the politics that are taking place today in Iraq, it is not terrible. Um, there are institutions in society um, there, that are transcending the sectarian divide. There are literally hundreds of civic groups that have emerged around the country. There are political parties that that, that transcend that divide. There is an elected National Assembly. Um, and they engage in what civic groups and parliaments, more or less, in, in other countries. And if you compare it to other countries in the Middle East, perhaps more political activity is taking place in Iraq than most of the other, other Arab states. Um, they have yet in, in Iraq to, to establish the laws to implement the Constitution. Um, I am hopeful um, that if the security situation can one day be resolved, that many of those issues that you talk about can be done in a way that's both compatible with the view of Islamic law and fundamental democratic principles. And I am also hopeful that there are enough, there will be enough citizens engaged in this process, uh, women's groups and civil society organizations and political parties that will serve as some check to this system once the security situation is, is resolved. However, when people feel insecure, they're gonna find comfort in their own communities and the fractionalization has, that has taken place has not only been between the three communities, but it's fractionalization within those communities too, which is the most dangerous.
1: Can everybody hear? Everybody, have, okay, fine. Yes, Mr. Gentleman.
6: Thank you. Um, my question is for anyone on the, on the panel who would care to comment. Um, but I think it might be of particular interest to our, um, our, our, our French guest. Um, my question concerns actually the current situation among uh, certain populations within the European Union. Uh, as uh, and, and this author has been mentioned, as Mark Stein is, um, discusses in, in his book, we, have, we, find ourselves, we find an increasing number of immigrant communities in Europe that are finding it very difficult to assimilate, um, particularly from Muslim countries and uh, whose uh, home societies of origin seem to uh, have no real concept of participating in a pluralistic democratic society. Uh, I, I wonder if any of the pa- members of the panel can comment on uh, will the nations of Europe have trouble uh, maintaining social cohesion uh, with this situation and uh, also, uh, if anyone cares to comment on, uh, did is there a perception in Europe that sovereignty and, and, and democracy are being undermined by the institution of the, Europe, uh, of the European Union itself and, its, and, and the subsequent uh, erosions of sovereignty? Thank you.
1: Yes,
3: I can say a few words on these two uh, different issues. Uh, first, immigration, yes, it's, it's a big, big issue uh, to us, not only for the French but for European countries. As you know, uh, we, have, uh, we do have a true problem with integration. Uh, you saw uh, at, at the TV, you saw cars and, and, and buses burning in our country, and uh, we do have that problem just because we uh, do not have the same, uh, I think, the same uh, habits of integration. Uh, and uh, well, it, it's, it's a big problem. So there are, as you know, uh, many laws uh, starting to limit immigration, but we also need immigration to low. Uh, the second issue you are talking about is sovereignty. I would say yes, we gave up a lot. We gave up a lot on sovereignty. You know that when you become a member of EU, You you have to enforce EU laws and, uh, uh, I mean, governments and and courts are no longer sovereign in our countries. This is very true. The final word uh, on many, many issues belongs to the uh, Brussels Commission or to the Court of Luxembourg or to the Court of Strasbourg. And we can talk a lot about the the rule of law, but the, the final rule of law is given by the Court of Strasbourg.
4: I'd like to address one element of the question, the first part, and tie it with the question was asked just previously about Islamic identity. I think our administration has again done a terrible job. This term Islamofascism is a disastrous PR mistake because it implies Islam is fascistic. This is how it is interpreted and understood by pious Muslims who ought to be our friends, who do not want politicized radical Islam. Big mistake. And if you force people to choose democracy or religious identity, you will lose that fight. I guarantee it. You will lose. Do not start that battle. And this administration, I was so angry when our president used that term. This was a big blow to our, uh, the perception of our values in that, in a huge part of the world. I'd make one point for all the lawyers here. Please do not associate Islamic law with the extreme vicious practices of Saudi tribal law. That is not what Islamic law is about. And if you want a good example, Wael Halak's uh, recent book, The Origins and Evolution of Islamic Law from Cambridge University Press, very good introduction. There's a sophisticated and pluralistic legal tradition that has been occluded by the fact that some of the most primitive and backward tribal elements. (coughs) of that broader society found themselves on trillions of dollars worth of oil. Imagine how Christianity would be interpreted if you took the most bizarre, primitive, wacko cult in the backwoods of America and gave them $25 trillion. What would happen to the perception of Christian culture after 50 years? There is a a more pluralistic, potentially compatible with democratic values, Islam out there. But it has to be fought for, and our president did our friends a great disservice when he used that term Islamofascism, which also, I should point out, is a grotesque uh, misappropriation of the term fascism, which means something. Referring to Mussolini's state and the ideology that came out of that has nothing to do with Osama bin Laden, who doesn't favor state control of the economy in one-party states and so on. Uh, There is the potential for an Islamic liberalism, we should find their friends. They are out there. The Association for Liberal Thinking in Turkey, for example, groups in Bangladesh, in India, and elsewhere, and embrace them. But when we tie Islam to the rejection of liberalism, you're starting a fight you will lose.
7: Yes, sir. Hi. I wanted to comment on Bill Crystal's response to the gentleman who talked about spending time in Europe and how we're perceived over there. Um, uh, Mr. Crystal, you mentioned how you think there might be a divide between Europe and the rest of the world as far as anti-Americanism, and you may be correct on that. The only problem I see with that, and I spent this summer in both Europe and Asia and had dealings with law students from all over the world, those who are pro-American or not anti-American They don't necessarily know why they are, or can articulate why they are. I had so many comments after the program from people: "Wow, you admitted you voted for Bush and defended it, and uh, articulated why. I never heard these arguments before." So the media in India and most of Latin America, it's very similar to Europe, and they're only if we think the uh, media is generally biased against the Bush administration here. It's in most countries you couldn't imagine it. They never heard any of the contrary arguments and how can we resolve that other than better public diplomacy
5: no i don't i don't disagree with that point and i, I, mean, I would just say if you ever want here i'm totally with think if you ever want to think about areas of the areas of life that are damaged societies that are damaged by state control media is in a way the most important and we we take for granted reasonable openness in the media, more so, I'd say, in recent decades, incidentally, um, uh, here in the US. So, new news channels, new magazines, talk radio, and all these things can flourish. It is hard. One reason in Europe things are bad is there's such amazing state control of the major media and such obstacles, both informal and formal, to a kind of bottom up talk radio, blogs, uh, you know, new mag- uh, ma- uh, journals of opinion type media. Uh, in so many countries elsewhere in the world. So, I mean, I'm all for taking on statism in lots of ways, but I would say statism in terms of ownership of of media outlets or constraint of media outlets or making it harder to both import media but also for citizens to simply start media is really one of the forms of statism that's most pernicious and does us a lot of damage. And so to be fair to the U.S. government, I mean, we could do a better job in public diplomacy, but in some respects the outlets are, are, are so... Uh, they have such a stranglehold in a way on what citizens learn that I'm not sure we could have the most articulate secretaries of state and the best uh, 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 programs of uh, uh, public outreach. It's still hard to to break through. Maybe we should spend more time encouraging other countries to break up their media monopolies. so I suppose that would then look like America throwing its weight around. But uh, um, it would actually be an important thing to do.
4: Yes, sir.
8: Question for uh, for Mr. Palmer, although any other panelists might want to comment as well. Mr. Palmer, I, I enjoyed your presentation very much. It was very eloquent, very persuasive, and uh, I think you have very many valid uh, critiques of <clears throat> the, uh, the foreign policy. My my question to you is: What what is the alternative, and what you know what should be done instead? And uh, Obviously, too broad of a question, but if you're able to take a take a stab at that, and if if it's not going to be to be proactive in uh, uh, trying to launch preemptive strikes or so on, it is the only alternative to to sit back and wait for another similar attack? And so, basically, my question is, what what's the alternative, uh, even if your critiques of the the current policy are valid?
4: Oh well, gosh, that's such an easy question. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let me mention two things. One is I think that the decision to go into Iraq was a, a disaster. It was a big mistake. But it is also a mistake that was made. We have to live with it now. So now the question is what do we do? And I wish I knew the answer to that question. I don't. And I honestly don't think anyone else does either. Let's just be all humble in this regard. What to do about Iraq right now is a very serious problem. Many people have strong opinions, but very few people have well-considered opinions on this topic. And I honestly admit I don't know what is the best policy forward. It's asymmetric from the decision to go in, where I feel very strongly I was right in opposing it. But now that we're in, you can't just walk out tomorrow and let all of our friends be massacred, which is exactly what would happen. So I don't know what to do about that. What I do think is appropriate was I liked the George Bush foreign policy of 2000. Remember those terms, humility? What happened to that? I would like to return to that foreign policy. A little bit of humbleness would be appropriate for our government in the future. I don't think we just wait for an attack, however. Find the Al-Qaeda terrorists and kill them, right? I'll, I'll say the unfortunate term. You're not supposed to say that. Neutralize them. Find them and kill them. Fine. I'm happy. I would take part if someone gave me the opportunity because they have killed my friends uh, in a number of countries. They have killed my friends in Iraq. No mercy for these people. But do not invade Syria, please. For the love of God, do not do that. The result of this and the fact that it has been discussed in Washington is so irresponsible. This would cause the entire region to erupt in flames and we would be very badly burned as a consequence. A more humble foreign policy, and what I think is the most effective carrier of our values, is the iPod, its MTV, its freedom of trade, its tourism. Those are more effective at undermining some of these disastrous and malicious regimes than clumsy, heavy-handed foreign policy. And I think that an example, one that wasn't mentioned, is South Korea. South Korea didn't particularly move because they were pushed by the U.S. toward democracy. They developed a market economy, a middle class, and internal forces moved them toward it pretty rapidly if you look at the long sweep of historical time. So I think that if our government exercised a little bit of humility, the future is a future of liberalism. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted
2: among men deriving their just right from the consent of the governed. Question to the panel is that, are those American values, or are those universal values?
4: I'll take a quick stab. They're universal. All men, that is all human beings, are created equal. It doesn't say all of my friends or all the people like me. They're clearly universal. But the question is, does that authorize a government committed to that to do more than secure the rights of its own citizens? It does not follow from the universality of the values that the institution of government to protect them is thereby authorized to go around the world defending the rights of anyone who's oppressed. So... Uh, universality. it does not follow however that we should have one world government as a consequence
3: I, I, would, I, I, just, I would agree with that I would say yes they are universal and we don't have to be afraid to say that they are
2: universal I think as I said earlier you can prove empirically that it is universal every public opinion poll that is conducted in any country in the world the population in those countries would agree with that. But I don't also believe that countries that don't adhere to a semblance of that, that, that are, you do not have the right to brutalize your own citizens. And I ultimately think we are ultimately all responsible for one another. What happens today in one country for good or for evil will impact all of us. And so, ultimately, the whole definition of sovereignty, I think, is, has changed over the last 30 years as, as because of the interdependence and the interconnectedness around the world.
8: Yes, sir. Yeah, my, uh, my question, I guess, is for uh, really open to any of the panelists, but what what is the value and is there value to failed experiments in democracy and incomplete? Uh, if you look at a place like Pakistan that has traditions of uh, elections and yet, you know, today has a military dictator. If you look at uh, Russia, where there have continued to be the forms of democracy, there are elections, there have been peaceful transfers of power, and President Putin even feels the need to say repeatedly that he's going to step down at the end of his term, and yet most of us, I think, would not look at at Putin's Russia and say, you know, this is a functioning democracy, this is an ideal. Uh, And even in a place like Germany where, for example, you had the, uh, the Weimar Republic, it was a failure and yet one could argue that, uh, that that did in fact give the german people some uh... some experience with you know learning lessons in democracy that, that came to be valued later on so i guess i open that up as to whether that's uh, something that will produce uh... fruits later on even perhaps in places like iraq and afghanistan if if the current experiments in democracy don't work today
2: um, i think i th- think the failure in- in in Pakistan, as the failure in Venezuela is the failure of the political parties um, that became corrupt, um, out of touch with citizens, uh, were seen as personalistic, uh, both the the Pakistan People's Party and the Muslim League in Pakistan and the Christian Democratic and and Social Democratic parties in in Venezuela. Um, But what's interesting in Pakistan, the rise of uh, Jamaat, in Pakistan is a reaction to the military government Uh, if you look at at polls in Pakistan the popular and the election results the popularity of the Islamic parties in Pakistan has rolled would decline even in corrupt civilian governments Uh, But ultimately, it's the failure of political institutions and it's the failure of parties. And ultimately, if there's going to be a reversal of those trends, those parties have to reform themselves, modernize themselves, and renew themselves if they're ever going to regain the trust of of the people in those societies. And if you look at the Chilean model, that's exactly what the political parties did in Chile. Um, They went before the, the Chilean people. They reformed themselves. They modernized themselves. And ultimately, those... Unless they do that, we'll find a a continuation of of populist demagogic leaders and military governments.
4: Thank you very much. I'm a European and I feel very well represented by Mr. Briard today because he and I belong to the same category of Europeans interested in a dialogue uh, with people sharing our values today
1: in this room. My question is to Mr. Crystal. I was a bit shocked by the fact that you almost gave
4: up on the Europeans. You, you created that impression. And I think that we do not have the benefit, as you said yourself a moment ago, of having talk radio, having Fox, having the weekly standard. So perhaps you should invest in cooperating with people like Mr.
1: Biard and me rather than giving up on the states that represent old Europe.
5: No, look, I... I uh I like, you know, as, like most people in my generation, I'm much closer to, I know European languages, not Asian languages. I love visiting Europe, Paris, and Rome, and London, not, frankly, uh, uh, the Far East or, or, or Latin America. So if I had my way, I would, I would love to have, uh, I would love to envision a future really, and I say this honestly, in which the U.S. and Europe were much more closely aligned, and I've spent a fair amount of time actually working with friends in France and elsewhere and speaking there and um, publishing uh, French uh, authors and, uh, in, in English in the Weekly Standard and giving permission for, for articles in the Weekly Standard to be translated into French, etc., because I, I really do hope that um, Europe remains very important, European nations remain very important, and obviously the more we have in common, and the more liberal ideas and the broad sense of liberal, Tom's earlier sense of liberal, flourish in Europe, the better. And I'm not giving up. I'm really not giving up. I just say also, though, as an honest uh, judgment, that, you know, the degree to which the European nations have decided to check out of history is really shocking, I mean, it's just, and I don't blame them. They had a very bad, you know, if, if they had a very bad 20th century. And,
6: <laughs>
5: no, and if I were a European in 1950s or 60s or 70s, I might have thought, you know, we do not want to go through the last half century again, and we will therefore more move towards this sort of EU vision of a post-historical, post-nationalist, post-military world. And then you add to that developments that are beyond anyone's control, the collapse of religious faith in Europe, the demographic situation in Europe, I just think as an empirical matter, on the other hand, a country, a, a, a continent that's going to be going shortly into negative population growth, with the exception of Muslim immigrants whom they're having a very difficult time assimilating. And unfortunately, this is the true tragedy, the second generation of whom seem to be assimilating less well than the first generation. I and mean, that's what's really scary about Europe. Stein... Really makes this point. Mark Stein is a very witty writer, but I do recommend his new book because it's more than just witty. It's really sort of deep. I mean, Moussaoui, the 20th hijacker, was born in France, I believe. He doesn't. He speaks French. I don't think he knows Arabic. You know, he knows a few phrases from, and you know, prayers. He's he's never been to the Middle East. The, he's a French citizen. That is the, the what they're fa- and I mean that is part of what Europe is facing internally. They've they've decided that military force, with the exception of partial exception of Britain and France, have decided military force doesn't matter or that they're not going to play in that world in the 21st century. That's okay. It hurts us. We don't have many. NATO is together in Afghanistan, which I applaud. But the truth is, what are there, 9, 10,000, I think, 11,000 European forces? This is all of Europe, 420 million people or so, and they're contributing 11,000, and it's a strain on them. 11,000 forces to Afghanistan. They're fighting courageously. They're taking casualties. It's a good thing that they're there. We're probably going to need more troops in Afghanistan, actually, and they'll have to mostly be U.S. troops uh, in the next year. But it's just worrisome that I I just say this analytically. I mean, I wish it were the case that we could look forward to a 21st century in which the U.S. and Europe side by side could be two pillars of liberty and freedom. I'm worried that Europe will be, I think, they won't be hostile, but will be a weak uh, pillar. They can do more on the civil society front. Maybe less on the military front, but military power still matters. Demography still matters. A big welfare state that they're having trouble supporting now matters and weakens them. And I just looking ahead, I think it could well be the case that the 21st century will be the first century in, what, a millennium, I guess, in which Europe will not be a central player. will be a central player. China, for better or worse, will be a central player. Uh, India will be a central player. The Middle East, for better or worse, will be a central player, the Islamic world. And I very much agree with Tom, incidentally, that there are forces within Islam that are, could be are more hopeful and that we need to work with. Uh, we can't make it a choice of Islam or liberal democracy. We're going to need Islamic liberal Democrats, but uh, Muslim liberal Democrats. But I worry that Europe will not be a pillar of the 21st century. And, you know, if it can be, that's great. If it can't be, we, we have responsibilities. To lead, and I think uh, I think we're trying to face up to those responsibilities. So I encourage our European friends, though, to to, to reform the welfare state and to uh, increase the birth rate in Europe if they can do that personally. Uh, we...
1: <laughs> I have six. Uh, uh, yeah, plus <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> I, I, I can't resist adding that unlike 9-11, to follow up on what Mr. Crystal said, unlike 9-11, the attacks in London and Madrid and Amsterdam were all homegrown, very different than Could what occurred here. Could I just here. put one word in for the EU, and that is that the
2: importance that it's played as a magnet for countries <laughs> further east. And I only wish there was a similar mag- magnet for the Middle East.
1: We have one minute. Yes, my question
9: concerns the promotion of uh, democracy or civil society in the Middle East, and I guess it's to Bill because uh, since he seems to have his ear closest to the ground in terms of what policymakers do, if he's got any inside information he can give us. My question has to do with the role of women in the promotion of civil society and democracy in the Middle East. I think you would agree. I hope you would agree. I hope that the panelists would agree that, uh, the ability of women to exercise a profession, the women, ability of women to vote, the ability of women to own property in their own name. So we can all think of a variety of features of We're American to, democracy that permit this. Um, should we be doing more uh, on this front in terms of trying to create civil society in countries where women enjoy a rather uh, subject status?
1: It's so yes a yes or no question. And, absolutely. <laughs> and, and well, perhaps, you only have five seconds, perhaps, so. Perhaps, <laughs> and, and I,
9: no, I'm I would even I'm saying this go. because there was a program before the, before the 9-11 uh, happened. There was a program a woman named Jennifer Seymour Whitaker was working on at the P- uh, Council on Foreign Relations looking at uh, countries in Africa where women were allowed to receive through micro-lending the ability to set up their own businesses. And they found this had a fairly positive <clears throat> impact on political participation. And after 9-11, there was some interest in this, but I don't know what's happened to it. And I'm I'm interested in this as someone who believes that the promotion of an elevation of the status of women in these societies would have a more positive impact on the development of civil society in those countries overall.
2: I I would go as far to say that you need to jumpstart the system in many cases. In terms of women gaining real political leadership um, in the region, Um, it's going to have to come through political parties and that the parties have to change to allow that political leadership. And quotas have been used to jumpstart that system. You have 35 women today in the Moroccan parliament, the the largest on the African continent, because of the quota system. And and I I believe if you don't try to jumpstart the system through sort of extraordinary steps, you're going to wait for generations. If you're going to just do it through a microcredit, you know, you can wait generations for, for women to gain real political leadership roles, and I think that there are exceptions where those types of extraordinary measures are needed. I can't let Bill get away okay. without answering. I, I'm, I'm going to have
1: to end it. Um, getting all kinds. Can I get 30 uh, seconds to go on uh, this? There'll be a 15-minute break uh, before the next event, and thank you very much.